So welcome everybody to the Psychology 360 podcast. It's been a li- it's been a minute since uh, since our last interview, but today I have with me Federico Alvarez from the Institute of Frontiers of Psychology Studies. And I've said that wrong, but I will, as usual, let Federico introduce himself. Uh, he's out in Freiburg, Germany. And he's actually a colleague and uh, collaborator of one of the previous guests we've had on the show, uh, Mark Whitman, who talked about time perception and altered states of consciousness. But Federico, please let everyone know who you are and your areas of expertise. Hi. So, yeah, thank you very much, Simon, for, for having me here. It's a pleasure. Um, I'm, as you said, Federico Alvarez. Uh, I'm working at the Institute for Frontier Areas of Psychology and Mental Health. That's the, the full name of the Institute here in Freiburg, Germany. And as you rightly said, I'm working with Mark Wittmann uh, together in a EU-funded project. We're one of several teams working on this project. Um, and the project's called Virtual Times. And what we basically do within that project without going into too many details of what the project is about right now. But what we do is we try to understand how video games and virtual environments affect um, time perception. And specifically with regard to the passage of time. Great. So oh, yeah, so doing this for the... Oh, sorry. I was I was told by yeah, by Mark that you guys are doing research on the altered states of like consciousness in a way when it relates to time perception and also uh, like virtual yeah virtual world virtual reality. But what brought you to uh, to this field? What what made you interested in time perception? And are you a gamer yourself? Well, to answer your last question, yes, I am. And um, I've played for many, many years now, um, and I love video games. And I, one of the things that brought me into um, the game studies field, that's where I'm mostly active, I would say, and where I come from. Um, it's, it's this love for video games and for this new medium that, that brings so many interesting new possibilities to many of the, I mean, to, to the for example, the art of storytelling and, and um, what the, about for the new things that video games do with the games itself, themselves. Uh, so it's a, it's a nice little, little mix of fictional worlds in which you have agency, you can uh, take the role of a protagonist and uh, instead of just watching or reading what the protagonist is doing and mixed with mechanics and rules and objectives like in all you know, games we most people know like uh, board games or um, card games. Uh, so it's this little, very interesting mix. And I got interested in the aesthetics of games, of video games uh, when I was starting my PhD. Uh, I have to say a little bit about my background because I'm not a psychologist by training. I'm learning on the job now for, I've been learning on the job for a year and a half now um, and becoming, uh, or, or yeah, learning how to, conduct experimental studies and, and working closely with experimental psychologists and uh, one of my colleagues is a bioengineer as well, a neuroscientist, et cetera. Uh, my field of expertise is video games and, and the intersection between video games and time perception. 
my PhD was a theoretical PhD on the temporal aesthetics of games. And there I took theories of time perception from psychology and the cognitive sciences in general, and used those theories to, to explain why video games are like they are, at least when it comes to, to the temporal structures and aesthetics of video games. Um, and I also uh, dissected the medium in a way, and then tried to look at the temporal structures of videos, how, how video games structure temporality. How do you tell a story with a game and structure that story, for example? Um, and what other temporal structures do video games have with relation to mechanics? So it had these two sort of, uh, um, uh, well, uh, points of focus. My, my PhD thesis on, on the one hand, the formal aspects of games, on the other, the time perception and the, the experience of the player. And I brought those two together. Um, and also speculated a bit uh, then on, well, if the games are like this, and this is how our time perception works, um, what can games do to our time perception? But at the point where I was writing my PhD, I finished in 2018. Um, there was very little research with regard to time perception in video games. And uh, most of what I said there was speculative. Um, so now I moved into this experimental field of research where I can actually test and try some of the things. I, I, I theorized about in my PhD. Um, and before my PhD, I come from media studies and uh, visual arts. Uh, that's my background. So um, it's kind of a mixed background where my, my focus, you could say previously was aesthetics, uh, which is a more theoretical field, like philosophy yeah. of art, philosophy of, yeah. uh, and, and uh, media aesthetics. And now I'm combining that with experimental science and hopefully, uh, you know, continuing in the future in this path of doing like an experimental sort of aesthetics or an empirical aesthetics. I am very much interested in that in particular. Yeah. Definitely uh, uh, a different background than what, what I usually have, but yeah. the point of this podcast is psychology 360. So 360 degrees. So we look at every type of approach and perspective. So that's quite interesting. And actually, the first thing that came to my mind when you were describing that was my own personal experience as a ex video game addict. Um, when I was a, a early teenager and um, maybe even in childhood, I was addicted to video games. But one of the things that I noticed, I think it's the first vivid experience of playing video games. It was on a computer. And indeed, it relates to time perception, because I remember I was at a friend of my father's at his, at his uh, house, and I was in, his, in the room playing these games, and I can't remember exactly which games they were, but I was playing, and uh, my father was there for about three and a half hours, and I felt that I had been on the computer for... Uh, maybe 30 minutes, 40 minutes. So when I was right. told that uh, it had been three and a half hours, I was quite uh, surprised. And I noticed that uh, that happened a few times where uh, I would play games and then, uh, you know, the whole day would go by and I wouldn't um, notice it. So is this something that you guys are looking into as well or... Yes, that is uh, quite specifically what we're looking into right now. And that's the, the area of um, experimental research in time perception and games that has 
I would say, where the most studies have been run. It's still a very incipient um, uh, sort of uh, area of research. It's still still growing, but there is good evidence that uh, time, uh, like gamers and people who play video games, tend to experience time loss um, and tend to lose track of time while playing. And that's one of the things, indeed, that we're, we're researching here, specifically with regard to the state of flow. Um, and this is maybe also a little bit this uh, uh, altered states of consciousness that you've mentioned start playing a role. It's the state of flow in which you are basically has five characteristics, the mental state of flow, which is uh, that you're concentrated in activity, that you are, have the feeling that you're in control, that um, you, the movement and you make and the decisions you make um, come automatically to you. You don't have to think about them. Um, and you lose yourself, your sense of self. You're not thinking about yourself when you're in flow and you lose your sense of time. That's the, the fifth aspect of this mental state. There are other aspects of flow that have more to do with the um, characteristics of the activity that are, that are you know, um, lend themselves to a flow state, but that, those are the five that uh, characterize the, the mental state. And video games are very good at uh, eliciting state, flow states, at least that's um, the current understanding of the games. And I think at least what we know from research is that they're very good at making people lose track of time. I think a lot of what, what then researchers have done is extrapolate from there and say, oh, games are also great at flow. I don't know, to my knowledge, the evidence in that regard is not as, um, there is not as much evidence there, uh, empirical evidence of game producing flow, but on paper, they're a perfect match. Um, all the aspects that a, a, a task ha has to have to be flow inducive, like for example, provide immediate feedback um, give you clear goals, um, and uh, I'm forgetting there's a third one anyway, but video games have them, and their reports of players are usually that they, yeah, they lose track of time, and we can also discuss this maybe later, but some, this can be seen as something positive or negative, but usually a flow state is a pleasurable state. The problem with losing track of time is that you may lose a little bit control of how long you play, and uh, that might make games take more time of, uh, in your day that you would like to maybe, <laughs> or may, might make you go to bed later that you would like to, because you simply are not thinking about, oh, I played already three hours and I was just completely immersed into this game and, and my little struggle of time. Um, right. So it has two sides to it, you could say, yeah. Yeah, definitely. And when you were describing that, I can definitely see like the, connection with flow and games and and what what came to my mind and um something that i've read about and i've seen some presentations of are video games that are sp supposed to be educational and that mm -hmm. may help people uh like we are uh with uh with uh, my colleague at slow tech we're looking uh we're talking about this in terms of uh, adolescents and that may have uh, ADHD and finding these types of games where they can incorporate uh, learning as well as, you know, the games not being dull, but being very fun. So I'm not sure if you guys have uh, talked about this or thought about this kind of uh, application for, for games. Not specifically with regards to ADHD. I think they're the 
might be potential there. But um, this brings me back to, to this, the general aim of the project, this virtual times project that we're, we're a part of, uh, like I said, IGPP here, I'm Mark, myself and my colleague, uh, Shiva Koshnod, we're one team uh, of like six um, that uh, are part of this project. There are, there's a team in Cologne, Julich, uh, uh, in Cologne and Julich. There's a team in Strasbourg, for example, in Helsinki, et cetera. But the aim of the project is to treat psychopathologies like depression or schizophrenia by manipulating type and perception with a VR environment or a VR game. We're still um, in the early phases of this research project and the end of the, of the grant, we don't have to have a finalized project, but we a uh, product, but we have to have like a good prototype. And this uh, project has been running for a year now, or a year and a half of a total of four with some slowdowns due to COVID now, unfortunately. Um, but uh, we've been doing thinking about, for example, how to how flow states might be helpful for um, depressed patients, for example. And uh, but because uh, people with depression usually report that they're stuck in, in time, that time doesn't move, that they don't have a, a future, that they don't have a control of their lives. And those are more antithetical aspects to flow, sort of, so to speak. When you're in flow, you have a clear future because you have a clear goal, you feel you're in control and time is moving and moving fast. And so um, there is some evidence from some studies, but this is all still speculative, that if you play regularly and enter states of flow regularly, that some symptoms of rumination, uh, like rumination, for example, um, so symptoms of depression might be reduced. So it might have a therapeutic um, um, sort of use there to, to engage in games that, that, um, that bring you into flow states regularly. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, and that's, that's great. And in terms of, yeah, depression and uh, lack, you know, fe feeling uh, the stuck in time and ruminating over negative thoughts, and uh, you know this helplessness. That's that's very important in terms of getting people to do uh, activities or things that are that can become pleasurable. Because from my personal experience with flow, flow is something that we strive for, and I've personally noticed the difference in terms of with with the COVID situation and lockdowns and the lack of you know, uh, working just from home, let's say, I find that it's a little bit more difficult <laughs> to get into the States and certain activities that I found pleasurable before require more effort. So, uh, and, and it's, uh, I, I wasn't, uh, I wasn't aware of this particular application with uh, schizophrenia, for example, that's uh, fascinating. But how would you like what would be some examples if you can tell me or uh, I don't know if you guys are keeping it private for now but what what would be like an example of a type of a game or virtual reality situation that you would put uh, that you would use for somebody who is depressed and you're trying to induce a flow state well that's one of the things we're still trying to figure out entire, um, if um, we, we haven't had, a, have, we don't have a concrete answer yet. I think though, like the last two studies that we run um, uh, with regards to flow, um, we used a video game called Thumper. 
I don't know if you've heard of it or have seen it. It's not uh, very well known. It's a game that's easy, simple to play, but it's you know like easy to play but hard to master, like like games usually say. Um, and the reason why we picked that game is because we think it fulfills several characteristics that a game should have to be flow-inducive to even players who have no experience with games, because that's one of our challenges, right? It's one thing to bring a gamer into a flow state. The other thing is to bring someone who has never played a video game in their lives uh, or very, very rarely into a flow state with a video game. So uh, there's a different learning curve there for both types of players when they getting uh, when they start playing a game because uh, i mean the the gamer even if they haven't played that type of game ever they at least have had a controller in their hands for example and know how to operate a controller without looking down all the time right uh, at the buttons um, so we were looking for a game that um, we thought okay this game can be played by anyone virtually um, and but still it's not too easy that gamers will will be bored by it. Um, and Thumper fulfilled a lot of these um, characteristics that we're looking for. Also, for example, Thumper is a game where you don't have to do anything to to move. The game moves automatic. Like you play this little. It's a very uh, I don't know psychedelic game, but you play a a bug, and this bug is moving on a track. The bug is like a silver bug. It's moving on a track forward, and it moves automatically forward. And there are things on the track that you have to react to with button presses, right? Okay. Um, so for example, there's a curve on the track, there are spikes that you have to jump over. So the, that means that challenges are coming to you. You don't have to seek them. So you have to keep your always paying attention to that, uh, to the game. Unlike other games where you have to walk yourself and seek the challenges, right? Um, also in Thumper, you don't have to be moving the camera around. The, there's always, you're always moving forward. So the camera's always sit fixed behind the this little bug that's moving forward. So um, there's less um, motor skills to, to develop there. There's, you just have to press buttons when the things are uh, are about to hit the, the bug. And you only focus your attention in the middle of the screen where the tracks are. You don't have to be looking around for, for a stimuli. So all of these characteristics, I think, in Thumper, make it easy to, to start playing. And you only play with the button A in an Xbox controller, just one button and the analog stick, the left analog stick. That's all you need also. So you need to be changing, you know, to pressing different buttons and finding out where button B or button X is. And for that, non-gamers will have to be looking down all the time to the controller. Right. So Thumper was perfectly fit for what the game we were looking for, the you know type of game we're looking for. And I mean, these results aren't published yet, but um, like in the first study, for example, we already run all the analysis and, and even like, though like 70% of our sample was people who had little or no experience with games, uh, on average, they were all in a very high um, level of flow. And okay, so basically that would be a game then and trying to induce the flow state, but in terms of somebody yeah. and, and the, the sample you've had, were they like, Part of it were people who have depression and the other are healthy controls, or how was this? No, we only put, uh, healthy participants here. Uh, it's the group in Jülich that does uh, studies with depressed patients. Mm -hmm. um, so our study was the, the two uh, conditions were just uh, VR and on, on a normal computer screen. 
um, to see if there were differences there. We didn't find any significant differences in flow. We just found significant difference in performance, but um, I mean, those aren't relevant for, for the current discussion. But um, uh, what, I, and what I mean is like, we think that inducing flow is what reduces the, the depressed, uh, the, the symptoms of depression. So uh, basically that's why we were looking for a game that we thought was going to be good at inducing flow because in the end, I mean, and this is a, a study we still have to run, but uh, I'm probably Yulish will have to do it at some point. Uh, but um, we think that a game like Thumper that's good at inducing flow will be good or should be good in theory at reducing uh, the symptoms of depression. Um, there are other aspects of Thumper, like it has an atmosphere that's a little bit, you could define a little bit as creepy or unsettling, <laughs> the aesthetics of the game. And it's a little bit, uh, I don't know, like psychedelic, like I said. Maybe I would change that to, to um, treat depressed patients for something maybe that's a little bit more cheerful, but um, I don't know. <laughs> or okay, yeah. that's that's uh, very interesting. Yeah. <laughs> um, but so basically, your 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 research was more about seeing if indeed this type of setup would create a flow state, and in terms of the depression, it would be kind of like a non-drug um treatment for the symptoms and yes do you, is the is the um is the theory here like uh the premise that maybe like by inducing this flow state in a game setting then maybe that will uh make it easier for the person to then enter a flow state in other realms of their lives yeah or, and also like uh, that will reduce symptoms of depression, like, and they will become, uh, you know, they, they they will also exactly that that would be, I mean, not necessarily flow, but they will at least, with the reduction of the symptoms of depression, they will have, um, as uh, you know, that will already be one step towards, you know, um, treating the the psychopathology, and and it could be one more tool that you can use or apply in therapy. Um, to help uh, depressed patients regain control of their of their lives, you know, and be able to um, to perform uh, in life more, more, you know, normally, um, and maybe that that will also help them enter state of flow, states of flow in other areas of their lives as well. Yeah, but as long as it at least reduces symptoms, that's already I think a a, a good outcome. Yes, indeed. I'm just going to say uh, something a little cynical here, but uh, yeah. I mean, what if, what if the, you know, if you give uh, people with depression some um, opioids or some drugs, I think it would also uh, relieve their symptoms uh, temporarily. Uh, but yeah. in terms of, uh, in terms of the, I mean, in terms of the risk, wouldn't there be a little bit of a risk that you would get the depressed person to be less depressed, but then you may have uh, the game become addictive. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, that, uh, that's uh, an open question. And of course, I, I'd say, I mean, the, the game we're developing and, and any therapeutic game of that sort shouldn't be something that the uh, person in question, the patient should just download and play by themselves, like self-prescribing themselves the game, you know? It should be something used in a therapeutic environment uh, and uh, 
um, with the control of a therapist uh, or a, a psychiatrist. Um, so on, on the other hand, I mean, I'm also a bit skeptical about the claims of game addiction, if I'll be completely honest. I think there is no good evidence for that. I do think though um, that, um, yeah, it is, if you have, I mean, I, or what I'm a skeptical, I was using the term addiction with, with, with relation to games. What I do think of if you have in your life, um, you're lacking a sense of control and you're lacking, you know, games are very good also at rewarding you all the time for every single thing you do right. They're also very good at punishing you, to be honest, but, but they're designed in a way that you can learn them and master them and then become good at, become good at them. And they, they keep rewarding you every step of the way, every little uh, um, uh, improvement you make in skills, then you typically get rewards from games, right? There are exceptions. There are games that are designed in a way that they're very punishing, but uh, you can find games that are, in a way, very encouraging in that way. And yeah, maybe you can find that in games, which is missing in your life. Um, and that will lead to what we could call excessive gaming, right? And neglecting other responsibilities, other aspects of your life or a social life or, um, I don't know, work or your studies because you're, uh, you're uh, found in gaming something that you, you have lacking in other areas of your life. Um, so I think, yeah, there, there is a risk there that, of course, gaming shouldn't be the solution. It's, it's just a, a means to an end, of course. It's just a, a means to help a depressed patient to come to reduce, you know, to, to reduce their symptoms, come out of this depressed state, or, or at least uh, someone, you know, come out of that state and then find, um, uh, regain control of their lives and, and, and have a more balanced life, of course, but that's um, that's always a risk, uh, as you're saying. I think um, that the game then becomes uh, so good at solving this that then it becomes uh, um, like overtakes sort of the, the, the or takes over the the space that other activities and other prior uh, other things should have priority to like like social life and work and um, or studying or or whatnot, yeah. Okay, and and I mean, in terms of uh, addiction, I guess we we can get into like different definitions, but yeah, um, and this has been like I know there was a controversy. I had some guests on really talking about porn addiction, mm. sex addiction, and we get to the nitty gritty, and they say, oh well, you know, there's some people disagree, but I think in terms of what it what an addiction is would be like you use you're you're using a substance or you're engaging in an activity that is relieving some kind of negative state of consciousness right. or giving you a very uh a high and then basically you're neglecting as you said you're neglecting other areas of your life it may be impacting your health negatively your work life and and things like that and you see that, that, that this uh, you know a person may lose control or partially lose control of the behavior or the whatever other things they're engaging in but and this is this is uh fine there, there's some differences in how people define that the dependencies but in terms okay so this is and and i'm very interested because my field is psychology so when you tell me about depression and you talk about schizophrenia so could you give do you know uh how that is proceeding in terms of schizophrenia or how 
like uh, these games would be um, used for that? That's unfortunately not not um, an area I, I've been um, involved with within this whole project, so I can I cannot say much about that really. Um, uh, that's uh, that's more the um, the Strasbourg uh, group that's involved with that, and um, yeah, I cannot say much about that to be honest. Yeah. Okay, that's that's fine. So let's let's just stick with uh, your your uh, area, like there where you, where you guys are doing, and you talked also about um, virtual reality. Mm-hmm. And what have you guys been doing with the virtual reality uh, yeah. experiments? Um, well, one of them was, as I mentioned already, is this thumper experiment we did with have players play thumper for 25 minutes. And one condition was screen, the other condition was VR. And we wanted to see if uh, there was a difference in flow states and uh, time perception and um, other variables uh, between the conditions. Um, and we didn't find many differences there. Uh, the only difference was that they performed better. And there was a tendency to more flow in VR, but it wasn't a significant uh, difference. Um, but they performed better in VR than in non-VR. But that's also because Thumper is a spatial game where you have to to, to uh, calculate distances, a distance to an object, and how fast that object's moving. And I think if you have stereoscopic vision, like in VR, then that's easier to, to calculate uh, depth, for example, than if you're just watching a two-dimensional screen, right? Yeah, um, that makes sense. Yeah, the other experiment we did in VR, we went to the other end of the spectrum. Basically, we were working first with flow and a faster passage of time, because all those things we found in the in the first experiment that our participants were on average in high states of flow, and that correlated also with thinking less about time, with uh, a faster passage of time, for example, and flow correlated with performance as well. That was very interesting to see. The better they they played, the more flow, the, the higher the, the flow level. Um, and also, well, this I don't know how far deep you wanted me to go into the psychological theory of this, but um, <laughs> I think Mark talked about this also in the the episode you did with him about this model of uh, um, the attentional gate model, right, of time perception. That when you are not paying attention to time, when you're not thinking about time, then time moves faster. So we also find that correlation that. Um, the less they thought about time, the faster time moves, the more flow, the better they played. Um, And then we went to the other end of the spectrum, as I was saying, and the next experiment, and that was, we bored players in a virtual world. And that was a purely VR experiment. And this connects to previous studies that Mark had uh, run. Uh, There were two studies, one in Israel with Sakai, who's actually the person who, uh, one of the um, uh, authors of this um, um, attentional gate model together with Block. And they conducted a study where they had people wait for seven and a half minutes in a waiting room. And they basically bored them. So they came in and with the, the experimenter usually said, well, we're going to uh, go outside now, but we'll be right back and the experiment will start. And then the experimenter left the room and that was the experiment already they were waiting for seven and a half minutes. And then the experimenter came back and then they had to answer a series of uh, questionnaires and whatnot. And what they found is like, um, well, yeah, the, the more bored participants were, the, the more they thought about time, the slower time passed for them. And in one of the studies, this was one study, the one in Israel, they found a correlation with impulsivity, for example, the more impulsive they were, 
the more boredom they felt and the uh, slower time passed for them. And then he ran a very similar experiment here in Freiburg in one of the rooms of the Institute of Frontier Areas of Psychology, where I work um, this time uh, looking at boredom as a mediator between self-control and, and, uh, and the passage of time. And what we did is basically created a virtual version of that room and replicated the experiment, but in VR, basically, uh, with a waiting room in virtual reality. And we told the participants like basically the same thing or a very similar thing to what they said to the participants in the real room. So wait here, don't stand up. Uh, we'll be right back. And uh, we told them in VR, the game will start in a, in a minute. And then we left the room and they had to wait there in the virtual waiting room for seven and a half minutes. And um, we compared the, the two studies, the study Mark did in the real room and the study we did in the virtual room. And the result was interesting because this isn't published either, but um, the yet, but uh, the participants in VR were more bored than the participants in the real room and time was passed more slowly for them and they thought more about time uh, on mm. average. Which, yeah, that was kind of also my reaction. Like, hmm, okay, we expected, actually, if you asked me before seeing the results, I would have thought, well, VR is interesting. You know, it, uh, it's a new technology. Most of these participants haven't even seen VR before. So I think if you're immersed in VR, even a boring room may, might be more interesting and exciting than, uh, than a real room, right? Um, now, in hindsight, like the way we're, I mean, I would explain this. Uh, expected result is, well, maybe participants were expecting more from a virtual room than from a real room, right? If you're waiting in a real yeah. waiting room, you don't expect really nothing much to happen. But if you're in a virtual room, that's an entertainment medium, video games, there are associations there, and it's a virtual world, so anything could happen, right? The roof could just fly off and then aliens could come in or whatever. Um, so, maybe it was the mismatch between expectations of being entertained and nothing happening that produced this higher, uh, more intense feeling of boredom and uh, slowed the passage of time even further, yeah. Right, yeah, that's, uh, and that's an interesting hypothesis, like in terms of uh, the scripts, the expectations. And I think that's right, like we associate VR with, uh, you know, with like, uh, with a, a uh, entertainment or something spectacular and uh so that's yeah and you know when when you're talking about these things i i go back and i think about all the cyberpunk from the 90s and uh, you know this uh, virtual reality ideal that was kind of uh sold to us and uh it's giving me uh i mean it's giving me hope that <laughs> there is some because it seems like the vr stuff kind of flat uh fell flat and uh i mean you guys are are doing this and so and in terms of time perception you mentioned that uh or time in general you mentioned how games uh like when you're in a game of course like from your experience there's the flow thing there's uh you're you're immersed in the game but in terms of how a video game designer designs time passing by what yeah. what is yeah i mean what has 
what what have you found there? And when you guys, like for instance, when you designed VR, VR environments, how do you, uh, what kind of frame of references do you give for time passing by? You know, because usually we don't have a clock, we don't have the time, we kind of look at the sun, maybe we see uh, then, you know, the natural environment and what's happening, but how do you, you know, it's a, it's a lot in a question, but how do you guys yeah. regulate uh, that? Yeah, well, um, one of the things we're doing is, you know, this is all very early stages. So we're still trying to find out uh, how to exactly do that and what parameters to what, right? But one analogy I, I, I like to use and I used in my, my PhD uh, thesis is that um, I borrowed this actually from uh, Julian Barbour, who's a physicist. So he said this in the context of a discussion about the physics of time, but I completely take it out of context because I think it's uh, interesting to, to talk about also how the brain arrives at time or produces time. Um, and he says that time, un unlike the emperor dressed in nothing, time is nothing dressed in clothes. And I can only describe the clothes. That's what he says. So he's referring to, to the fable, I think it's Hans Christian Andersen's fable of the, um, the, naked, the emperor who had no clothes, right? Who was fooled into thinking that he had a beautiful attire and that only smart people could see it, right? So he was too afraid to say, oh, I can see it and, and admit that he was uh, not smart. So he went out into the street into a parade naked and then a kid all of a sudden said, hey, the emperor's naked, you know? Um, it's the, this famous, um, Fable, but in this case, he flips it and says, "Well, time is nothing dressed in clothes. I can only describe the clothes." And I think that this describes actually what our brain does. Um, we don't see time directly. I mean, we arrive at time by seeing, perceiving other things like the, the clothes of time, right? Like movement and things changing state, um, and our internal. Um, processes as well, right? The brain relies a lot, I think, on interception um, to estimate the passage of time, for example. At least that's one of the theories that, that's uh, um, being put out there. So what I say a game designer does is basically dress time with virtual clothes, basically. And those clothes are um, varied, right? They're, I have a, actually developed for my PhD, which is, if I may, I'll plug my own book there. It's been published by a German publisher called Transcript Verlag. Uh, it's called Time and Space in Video Games, the, the, the title of the, of the book that resulted from my PhD. And I, I developed there a typology of the, all the temporal structures of the elements of games that um, give rise and structure time in a video game. And you have, for example, um, elements related. I have three categories, elements related to change of state, and those are, for example, events. One event might be just a simple uh, pixel changes color, right? Uh, that's already an event that you can use to perceive the passage of time within a virtual environment, right? And these events yeah. can happen at particular paces. And the interesting thing also about time in video games is that you can, you can pause them and you can rewind them and you can go back in time in video games, right? So there are a lot of characteristics, characteristics of events and changes of state that you can operate and work with in different ways than in real world. But there's also like spatial aspects of games that determine their temporality, right? So how you design space mm -hmm. in a game will give 
rise to the temporal structures of games uh, and might affect time perception as well, right? Um, and like just the simple fact that you have a space that with uh, three dimensions and you can place objects at different points in space, uh, that you will reach the objects first that are closer to you than the objects that are further away from you. That's already a temporal structure given, dictated by space, right? And um, there are very interesting ways also in which games play with this. Um, and then you have an, another layer, which is, um, I call conditions, but it, it's basically the rules of the game, you could say in a more colloquial, more colloquial terms, that also will influence the way you, you perceive time or time is structured in a game, right? If you're playing in turns, like first place, like in chess, whites play first, blacks play second, or um, you have objectives and you have to, the objectives are nested and you have to complete objective one, then objective two, then objective three, and that's already a temporal structure. So though that's one way in which you can design time in games, or like these are the three, three main categories which I think are part of the toolkit of a game designer to design time in games, um, mostly for the pers perspective of the structure of time. But then there's also the, the question of the passage of time, right? And how fast or slow you feel time's passing. And those rely on combination of all these things, but also uh, interact with the narrative layer of a game. Maybe if you have a very emotional moment in a game, um, right? If you are playing a game with an interesting story, I analyze this as well, theoretically in my, in my thesis, but um, if, you, if you're playing a game like Resident Evil, that's a, a, a horror game, a survival horror game where you're in the first one, you're, it's a series of games, but in the first one, you're in a mansion alone and it's infested with zombies and it's a very scary atmosphere, very dark, and you have very few resources to survive. Um, and you can die very easily. So that already puts you in a state of alert and uh, um, impulsivity sort of, right? Because you're, you're, you're startled by a simple shadow that's just moving on a wall. And the game with that, with that sort of horror aesthetics puts you already in a very present focused state. If you want to go to the time perspective, maybe theory, uh, it makes you impulsive, but to survive in that game and to, to succeed at the game, you have to have a future oriented perspective because you have very little resources and because you have to administer those resources wisely and don't not waste them. Um, so the game, I think a game like Resident Evil thrives in that tension between those generating this tension between you, the state, the aesthetics put you in and the state that the mechanics require you to be in to succeed. Um, so that's an example of, of what um, I think commercial games can do to uh, um, manipulate our time per perception in a way and, and uh, um, generate ent entertainment with that. Yeah, that's a great example. And one of the reasons I was asking that and connecting it with um, time and maybe the virtual waiting room was exactly that, like uh, to figure out, well, how did you design the waiting room in terms of was it like a static environment where nothing was changing? Because I think even in a, you know, even in a, a, a classic, a normal waiting room, you can at least, uh, you know, if there's a window, you can see some uh, tree moving or the leaves falling. So some things are happening 
Uh, but if you have a purely virtual static, vir uh, you know, room where there's nothing yeah. changing, <laughs> I think it, it will have the effect that time goes more slowly. Yeah, absolutely. And that's how we designed the room. It, nothing happened. It's just static. And okay. there, was some, there was some furniture in there, some photographs, because we modeled it after the, the, the real room here at IGPP at the Institute. Um, so um, the room has photographs in it and uh, like hanging from the wall on the walls and a sofa, a table with chairs. And so we put all of that in there, but it's basically everything is static. Nothing's happening. You cannot interact with anything. Um, so, so yeah, it's, a, it's boring. <laughs> it's basically boring. And that's one way you, which you can manipulate time perception because you don't, you kind of manipulate time directly because like I said, we don't perceive it, but if you go, you, you detect which are the elements of games or reality that, that clothe time in a way and allow us to perceive it and to allow our brains to arrive at time, then you can, you can tweak those and uh, control those and then manipulate time perception. Yeah. Yeah. And um, this leads me to like what, because I'm not familiar with the game you were talking about that you guys are using um, for the VR uh, and the game. But in terms of when you were describing like Resident Evil, I know there's a lot of play similar to how it's used in movies or in uh, TV where you have like music that plays a big role, where you have like, you know, ominous music or this music that mimics like fast heartbeats that uh, gets people to focus, to sh get a burst of adrenaline. And um, I can imagine that also has a big impact in terms of losing yourself. Because I've noticed just, I mean, on myself, I've noticed I might be watching a TV show and it may not even be that good. I realize rationally, I say, well, this storyline is not very thought out, but yeah, yet they've uh, they've invested so much into the sound effects, you know, the the music that it it still captures you and and still uh, still seems to have this effect that time goes by quickly because you're invested into that. So, oh, sorry, yeah. and so no, I, I wanted to. Right ask this for your for the game you're using so are you like is there this connection as well is there this uh factor of like music rewarding uh like when you do something well you get you hear some exciting music along with a burst of color or something like that i absolutely i think both uh on the reward side and on the punishment side that's accentuated by by the music and the the animations and the graphics of the game. Thumper uh, is a rhythm game. So picture Guitar Hero, basically. Yeah. Um, that's probably a better known game. I mean, I think the developers, the studio that developed Thumper was, uh, is made up of um, ex-Guitar Hero developers. Um, okay. So although in, in Guitar Hero, you always have these several lanes of the guitar, right? And and in Thumper, you start with just one lane, right? And then it starts amplifying. But anyway, it's very similar in concept. And the music in Thumper is not melodic. It's more like an ambient uh, track with a very uh, clear rhythm, mostly. And you have to react, I mean, you to the game world, but also in sync with the rhythm. That, and listening to the music helps you uh, be better at the game. 
And whatever you, whenever you do anything in Thumper, like uh, for example, turn a curve or jump over uh, some obstacle that uh, produces sounds that are incorporated in this rhythmic uh, soundtrack, right? And they are, the qualities of those sounds, at least I would subjectively describe them this way, are more positive um, when you do something right than when you do something wrong. When you do something wrong, you usually hear like a buzzer, for example, mm -hmm. and, and red lights on the, you see red lights on the track. And yeah. when you do something right, you, you tend to hear more like a bling and uh, it's a more pleasurable sound. Um, so yeah, they definitely do that, yeah. Okay, and, and so, if you could um, mm -hmm. just describe for me, like what are uh, the, just from your lab, so I don't overreach to the other labs that are working mm -hmm. on this project, but mm -hmm. what you are expecting to find um, and maybe some of the results you've mentioned, uh, induction of flow state, which wasn't statistically significant when compared to the game and VR, but what are, what else? are you guys yeah. looking at and hoping to uh, find in your research? Um, well, the, the, um, the main, our main uh, sort of in interest is always related to time perception and how you can affect it with virtual state uh, environments. And we're very interested in comparing virtual environments with real environments and seeing uh, how, um, well, how they compare or how they differ. Like for example, the result with the virtual waiting room being more boring than the real waiting room. That is the sort of thing we're trying to find out, right? And we were very surprised by the result, but that, that's great, right? That's what we're doing this research um, is to see how they uh, these uh, environments um, can be compared or if they're different or not and, and if they're different, how. Um, so, one of the things we wanted to, to test is exactly, well, what makes a game flow inducing? I think we cannot say that for sure, but we cannot say, we can say, I think a game like Thumper is flow inducing, for example. So that's already one step in the right direction, I think, um, and confirms uh, some of our hypothesis that what, how, what does a game have to have to, to be flow inducing? Um, we want to find out, well, how different types of environments affect time perception and for example, one thing we would like to do in the future and we're considering now is uh, try to put players into a present, uh, sort of mindful present uh, state. Like they're present, uh, they're, they're now but in a mindful way. And we're looking into games. We haven't decided yet which one we might use, but VR experiences that put you into a nature setting and where you just walk around and take like, go for a hike, for example, in VR. And we know of some studies that have done this, like waiting in a forest, comparing waiting in a city and uh, look at the differences between that. So we might um, go in that direction, but with VR in the future, for example, like looking at being in VR in a forest for a certain period of time compared to being in VR in the waiting room or being in VR in another sort of environment and always looking at what happens to time perception, how fast or slow does time pass, um, how often do, do participants think about time. Um, sometimes we might look at flow, but also I, like things like um, time perspective. We haven't used that yet, but that might play a role in the future. Things like self-control and self-regulation. Uh, we've already used those for, for example, the waiting room. 
Um, and as we expected, like the, the better people are self-regulating, the less the bored they were and the faster time passed for them. Um, so, th I mean, that's are the types of correlations we're looking for and, and um, to see how uh, this personal traits that people have correlates with states uh, that are induced by these uh, virtual environments, right? And which, which states do virtual environments induce um, right. with regard to time perception. Yeah. So yeah. are you, and I have two questions here. One is in terms, cause you're describing yeah. like future applications and like a VR forest, which sounds fascinating, but I can also like what came to my yeah. mind then was, um, w will you also have uh, stimuli that are not just visual, like, cause you know, like a forest experience, even a city experience, you have uh, smells and sounds and uh, touch maybe uh, if that's one. And the second question is, have you looked at personality differences and reactions to some of these uh, uh, setups? Um, with regard to the first part of the question, um, I mean, things like smells are very hard to implement. Um, so I don't know if we're going to go that way. Sounds definitely, sound is a big part of uh, this project. And I mean, um, the games we played like, well, the, the virtual waiting room, we didn't have to design any sound there because they were already sitting in a room uh, yeah. that was empty and <laughs> basically the same sound. Um, so, uh, but like Thamper had, of course, uh, a sound layer that was very, it's very important to its aesthetics. And if we pick a game uh, that has like a natural environment, like a forest, uh, that will also have uh, uh, a sound, sound effects, right? And you might hear it the wind or birds chirping or whatever, or water flowing. Um, we've tested a few of these games and, and, and yeah, they all have these sort of sound effects. Um, not necessarily music, but that's also an option, like because mood states affect the way you perceive time. Uh, so um, that might be something to consider in the, for future experiments. Uh, if we can uh, manipulate the, the, that variable, the music and see what happens. Um, with regard to personality traits, um, uh, to, uh, well, we've we've looked at things like uh, emotion regulation as a trait, for example. Um, like I said, but uh, not, we haven't looked at um, like uh, I mean, I know personality psychology like models like uh, um, the ocean model, for example. We haven't looked at that yet. Um, I don't know if we're going to. I don't know if your question was going in that direction. But, yes, um, it was. It was actually if you had looked at personality differences in terms of things like the big five, the ocean model five, or yeah. anything else. Cause even, uh, I don't know if I understood correctly, but even like emotional regulation could be like connected to the emotional uh, stability, mm -hmm. um, yeah. you know, realm or neuroticism realm. So. Yeah, we haven't looked into that yet. We might in the future. Yeah, I think it's interesting, uh, of course, to, to look into that. Um, but so far, we haven't. Yeah. yeah. Okay. And um, just for you personally, are you a regular user of VR? I mean, do you uh, do you access your own worlds or? Um, I well, I've started using it more often since I'm part of this project. I have mm -hmm. it here, like. <laughs> Because VR, one of the problems with VR is it's pretty expensive to have at home and you need right. a, 
a relatively big space to use it uh, fully, right? Yeah. Um, the new VR headsets, like, uh, I mean, to the, the ideal scenario is to have a five by five meter um, um, surface to play on. You can mm -hmm. use a smaller surface, uh, but, uh, and like a VR headset alone will cost you like 500 plus the computer to, to use it, et cetera. So I have invested in that in my for my personal use uh, at home. I, I don't think VR is quite there yet to make it worthwhile. Mm -hmm. uh, mostly with regard to content, because I think there, um, there aren't yet many very good games that would justify such an investment mm -hmm. uh, or purchase. But since I've been working here, I've, I've been testing games and using them, you know, to just uh, doing some research. <laughs> That's the nice part of my line of work that I can play video games and claim that I'm researching. Um, so searching for games that we can use in our studies. So I've been engaging more with VR in the past uh, year or so. And I've tested several games uh, there. And I, I think it's, it's very impressive technology. And um, I'm not usually impress, impressionable. And when I, I can watch movies of all types, you know, gore movies, horror movies, play games of all types. And um, I can manage that certainly, but I've played some VR games where I was short, you know, uh, close to taking the goggles off, <laughs> the oh, the wow. head mounted is off, and it was with very silly things. Like uh, one of my first experiences with VR was like uh, um, with a demo with the HTC Vive, and it was in this like little cartoony witch hut, like medieval fantasy, you know, witch hut you could call it, and. You could walk around and there was a little dragon and there were like books lying around and whatnot and things happening, uh, potions. And then uh, you could, if you clicked on certain surfaces, you could become smaller and you were standing on like a bookshelf and you were tiny and looking at the room. That was pretty cool. And then uh, there was one of the surfaces was a desk and I did that on, on the desk and I was tiny standing on this desk looking around and all of a sudden the spider came out. Uh, mm -hmm. from behind the desk giant spider and I just I freaked out I had to press the button again real quickly to become bigger and then I was looking at this small spider on the table again because I was big again right and saying to myself like thinking <laughs> like you cannot be scared of this you go back to that table and you stay there <laughs> and I did it and I looked at the spider and then the second I saw it I just had to go out again and become big again because I couldn't take it <laughs> and I think just to, to wrap to, to close this point, I did. I think also that has a lot of potential also with regard to time perception, since affection, uh, so aff affect and arousal can affect our uh, perception of the passage of time. These sort of effects that you can create with VR have a lot of potential for that as well. Definitely, and I mean, in what you were yeah. describing, you know, it could be extremely useful for phobias. Uh, you know, yes. for exposure, if somebody has a fear of spider, this could be a type of uh, exposure therapy and uh, without bringing the person to see a real spider. Yeah, that's, that's, um, that's certainly fascinating. And uh, I think that there's uh, quite a lot uh, that we will learn about time perceptions as well, because I'm involved as well with this type of research. We're looking more in terms of ADHD uh, because we are getting to know that more and more of 
what was considered like a secondary aspect of mental health, time perception or time perspectives, have a major and fundamental role in cognitive states, affect, and will definitely play a part in the in the condition. So if we intervene also in the in the realms of time and time perception, we we change uh, outcomes. So that's yeah, so that's definitely interesting. So Federico, is there anything else you would like to add before we close? Um, just to to your last point, I mean, the, the potential for VR and exposure therapy, I think that's one of the areas where VR is already in use. And one of the yes. partners of the project, Sayos, that they're in, uh, in Spain, they already have a product that, they, that is being used in therapy. Like, for example, you have fear of heights. Uh, you can use this VR application and you're exposed to heights and you can, um, you can do exposure therapy, as you said. And... Uh, with VR before me, perhaps moving to the real thing, right? Uh, in a safer environment, so to say. So that's one of the applications of VR that I think um, has been explored the most at this moment. But there's a lot of potential there that's still untapped. So we hope to find a little bit more of that in the next year or so, and you know, during the duration of this project. Yeah. Indeed, and as someone who has some fear of heights, I have to say I did try that. I don't remember if it was that specific company, but I tried one of the exposure uh, therapy, you know, applications for fear of heights via VR, and I can attest that it was uh, quite realistic and quite scary, <laughs> <laughs> and but but quite effective, no no doubt. Uh, so yes. So, uh, Federico, it was uh, a pleasure to have you on and to hear about your research. And uh, I'm very happy to, you know, learn more about this. And uh, if you could, maybe if you want to share a place where listeners can find you or link, I can, of course, share also in the show notes um, some, some uh, links to, to you or to your um to your lab. Absolutely, I can send you that gladly. And uh, for, to find me, I'm, I'm on Twitter. It's at Fede Alvarezzi. So it's F-E-D-E, my first surname, which is Alvarez with a V and a Z and an I at the end. So Fede Alvarezzi. Um, that's where I'm mostly at uh, online. That, um, yeah, there's also my website, federicoalvarez.com. It's uh, still a bit of a work in progress, but there they, you can, people can find if they're interested more about my, my research publications, et cetera. Yeah. And I'll definitely send you a few links. Excellent. Thank you very much. And thank you all for listening.